The place. Oneofus.net. The date. June 28th. The time. All of it. Wait, what? That's right, on June 28th, starting at 12 noon, we'll be broadcasting for 12 hours. It's our first ever oneofus.net Comic-Con Potathon fundraiser! 12 hours? We didn't agree to... There will be special guests, prizes, and several of your favorite site personalities pushed to the edges of their sanity when geek inebriation meets sleep deprivation. Funds received will go towards a One of Us meetup during Comic-Con as well as an end-of-summer bash in celebration of our one-year anniversary. I'm glad you've come around. Well, what the hell else am I going to do all day? That's the spirit. Join us, won't you? So, Richard, do you like how I landscape the backyard? Oh, you've made some... Interesting choices. What are, what are all these little wooden statues and figurines? They look kind of pagan for around these parts. That's, no, don't worry about that. That's just a little hobby I have. It's it's fine. Hang on. Is that a, a crown made out of antlers? I, I, not to get worried about... I, I, there seems to be some interesting aesthetic choices here. Well, you know, it's no, it's like it's just a little art piece. I like to think about it. Doesn't mean anything. Is that a shrine? N- no, of course not. Oh, hold on, let me cover up this hand. I mean, this uh, thing. The the blood. St- what? Why is that kind of a dark? I'm red color. That that. I look, Richard. I have hobbies. Okay, don't worry about it. Beer. Light or dark? Ooh, mystical. Hello, and welcome to Digital Noise. Hey, Op. I am Chris. I'm not. I'm Richard. Well, that clears that up. Hey! <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, no beard. Okay, I'm Chris. Ah. As always. Uh, we are glad to be back here again. We've got a bunch of really awesome titles to talk about this week. This is a solid week. It uh, is. Last week was a little, was, there was, it was scant, and, and, shall we know, say? This has both really good and really bad stuff this week, but there's more than enough, like, can't-miss titles that this is going to be fun to talk the, about. The, there is a spectrum, uh, but the high end of the spectrum is, ho, 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 it's Jim Dandy this week. Indeed. There is some good stuff. Uh, and before we get started with that, let me just do the, the, uh, the shop talk here where I say, hey, it's a great time to be a subscriber for oneofus.net. Uh, if you look on the side of the front page, there's a little subscribe button there. There's a link you can go to see all the benefits you get by being choosing one of the four tiers of being a subscriber. And we are just now starting to upload a bunch more stuff into the subscriber-only forums. That's also with the commentaries we do that you'll you'll see where they're up there for 48 hours. We just did Big Trouble in Little China with Richard here. And indeed with my with my delightful wife, Melissa. Indeed, uh, which was super, super fun. That's only up on the site for 48 hours, and then you can only listen to it if you are a subscriber. And there will also be subscriber-exclusive, always only for subscriber commentaries as well, as well as bloopers, uh, a special new podcast we're working on that's only for subscribers, all sorts of fun stuff, t-shirts, souvenirs. Why, why aren't you already a subscriber? I'm just saying. Absolutely. Also... 
If you click on any of the links of the titles on this page that we're reviewing today, that will take you to an Amazon buy page. And if you buy that product from Amazon, we get a little kickback if you go through our links. But you also can buy anything else starting from that link. As long as you start from that link and we still get a kick. You know, you could go on there and buy like a giant purple dildo. And, if you wanted. And we get a percentage as long did, as you, did you start. Hear, did you hear about cyber dildo, by the way? Sorry, brief digression. Cyber dildo? Cyber dildo. Somebody's released a cyber dildo that apparently you can feel what, you know, it's actually a strap on and you can feel the sensation of that. I don't know how it works. But Wait, I don't understand. Technology. How you feel the, te- it's a strap on. And you, it feels like you're wearing you like you have male genitals apparently well that would work good for people who used to have male genitals and want them again yeah i would think that that would be a which is a small niche market but apparently small but they're very concerned about this apparently there has been research on this on exactly this topic (laughs) enough so to go to market huh there you go the japanese i'm assuming uh no i think it was american really yeah huh I just want the Japanese sex robots. Why? I mean, come on. We've seen them. We know they they exist. Why aren't they here already? ED-209 is not a sex robot. Well, I mean, as long as she's a little lube, it can ne- be. Neither was, neither was the one from Star Wars that just went gonk, gonk, gonk. That's not a <laughs> sex robot per se. Well, yeah, you put a wig on them, you know, a little makeup... Anyway, DVDs and Blu-rays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot that's what we're here for. Unfortunately, I totally forgot to ask for viewer questions this week. Oh. Totally forgot. So no viewer questions this week. I'm sorry. No viewer mail. But but it gives you more time to think of stuff for next week, gentle listener. We had a crazy, this has been a crazy week so far, recording stuff. So I just, it got lost in the shuffle and I apologize. But you know what? You're here for the reviews anyway. So let's go into the reviews. And uh, let's start off with one of the weirder things I saw this week, which was Bushido Man, Seven Deadly Battles. And yeah, this is an odd one. Um, I Here's the thing. There's two types of martial arts films. There's ones where they really try and like build up a plot around it and have lots of story and like, you know, make it where you're emotionally invested in these characters so that when there are fights, they mean more. And then there are movies that are more Mortal Kombat style where it's like just like one fight after another trying to trump the previous fight. This is the latter. Oh, yes. But and then, then some. On LSD. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what a strange idea where they take this guy who's regularly going to his master and, uh, Saying, like, I basically he's we keep flashing back to him describing he's describing to his master what happened. But we see it, you know, on film of him challenging all these various martial arts and fighting masters and trying to get these scrolls that are sort of like the master scrolls of their art form mixed interstitially by sequences of him eating food like food porn yeah, uh, of him eating food that in some way, even if it's just a pun is related to that master. No idea why. Because. It's a, it's a really strange concept for a thing. Uh, but those scenes are hugely entertaining. Yeah. This, this is the thing about this. I mean, I've watched more than enough of the uh, style versus style uh, films. You know, and they are a, a massive genre in their own right. This is so berserk, so senseless, so changes the ground rules on you every five minutes. I mean, I think really they, they must have changed the production designer Every 20 seconds. Because first of all, you think, oh, this is set in, in you know... In medieval uh, Japan. And then it's, it's not. It's set in contemporary Japan. And mm. then it's set in future Japan. And it's like, what is happening here? This makes no sense. And like, 
Apparently, knife fighting with the Yakuza is a martial arts style. Well, I, I mean, never knew this. Odd stuff over, like, fighting a guy who's obsessed with John Wayne for, for like, you know, gun Short bullet fat dodging. John Wayne, seemingly. Short fat John Wayne, yeah. yeah bullet dodging, Chon, not to martial arts. John Wayne. <laughs> uh, and... It's not just that. There's this weird style of filmmaking that's very kind of organic feeling the way they do it. It's digital, and so it doesn't look... It's not proper film, and you can totally tell, but they do some really interesting camera work in this using with the limitations of what they're using that at first was distracting, and then after a while, like, I was kind of admiring it, going, this is actually quite beautiful, the way you put these, these scenes together. This guy knows how to film a fight scene, certainly not to the level of, like, Gareth Evans or anything, but who, who can? I mean, he makes every Chinese director look like they've never filmed a fight scene before. <laughs> you know? uh, but there's, you know, I mean, the fight scenes here are indeed solid, if not somewhat silly at points. Um, there's one in, with the, the, uh, the nunchucks where, you know, it's just really a one-note joke. Fight. Yeah, I mean that, that's kind of the fun thing that you you know you're going you're going to have to wade through seven fights, and then it turns out you don't because some of them are just utterly inept, yeah. um, or kind of ridiculous. But when he does the fight, there's a they all reference some other. It's not just the the martial art in question, but a film about that martial art. So there was a fantastic Zaitoichi. Oh, the blind, blind swordsman sequence was great, which is you know ten minutes of just utter cinematic pleasure. But then there's other stuff you're like, you just found a warehouse and some guys and there's not much of a plot and I'm not sure why any of this is happening. And yeah, and it just gets more and more silly. Kneecap shotguns and stuff like that. Yeah. I, well, it's in the last 20 minutes, it kind of becomes more like, you know, one of those Tokyo girl type things, you know, Tokyo gore police or something like that, where yeah. the rest of the film isn't like that at all. No. And like, yeah, by the end, you're like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? Like, even like interacting like there's a sequence where like you know oh they the the good guy just died holy shit and the credits start rolling and you, his hand reaches up like and pulls the credit screen back there is down. a phenomenal <laughs> violation of the fourth wall which yeah. was like and that's the thing this clearly is not meant to be a film this is a bunch of stuff randomly thrown together which ends up being entertaining yeah and I, you know i, I there's nothing wrong with that frankly i think the director um he previously did um Hard Revenge Millie and Hard Revenge Millie Bloody Oh, that Battle, makes a lot of sense. Which, you know, are slightly more pretentious versions of that Tokyo Gore scene. They don't work for me. They're, they're too pretentious and silly uh, without realising they're silly. They're sure. Just, just po-faced nonsense. Whereas this was... he. I think he realised, like, I'm doing something dumb here, so I can just have a blast with it. And the food stuff really works. It shouldn't do. And there's, there's moments work. where he's like going through and finding traditional China, uh, Japanese food and eating in a very traditional way. And then there's a bit where he goes into a convenience store dressed still as a, uh, a, a wandering samurai and just gets a load of like really shitty takeout food. And I'm like, and just crams it down. And you're like, what? Eh? Well, this is a film which is confusingly fun. Yeah, they're just, it is just here to have fun. And it's well made enough that you're not frustrated by the fact it's not taking itself seriously. You will genuinely enjoy the most of the fight scenes in here. And it was done with no money. Yeah, if you can, I mean, like I said, you can tell just by the, the, the type of digital film it's done with. Yeah, and then, you know. there's actually an extra uh, where they, I think they went to um, Fantasia in Canada and they're talking about, we had no money. We're amazed this got into a festival. Huh. We're amazed anybody cares about this. They seem genuinely shocked. So it really was them and some mates went off and made a film with just some bonkers stuff in it. And it's 
it works better than it should. Yeah, and like I said, they got solid martial artists to be in this thing. You know, and it's just one of those that has the whole conceit where, like, he'll start losing the fight until he's like, oh, wait, I figured out how they do it, and then he'll start imitating them and then turn around and use their own techniques against them and win, which is nice power if you can get it, I guess. And there is a really <laughs> good... Uh, the opening fight sequence is... Uh, uh, karate uh, versus Kung Fu. Oh, and it's really, it's a legitimately solid. good fight. I was like, this, if it does this for the rest of the film, I'm going to be really excited by it, but I don't know how they're going to find six other styles. And they go, we're not going to. We're going to have some stupid shit. Yeah. And a, it, but loaded with references. I think you can get, just get drunk and spot all the references to other films. Did you notice the one guy in the uh, wrist shooting? Like, this girl has these guns that fire when you punch, which is a neat concept anyway. So there's, like, a whole fight where they're, like, you know, everybody's got g- wrist guns and they're punching at each other and trying to avoid the bullets. You're like, okay, that's that's actually kind of fun. But kind of the main bad guy in that sequence? He's in everything. Well, he he's, a, like, a guy who's at Fantastic Fest every year. He's, like, a producer. Yeah. He always comes to, like, very Alamo events, he's friends with Tim League. I was like, holy shit, I had to pause it, look him up on IMDb and go, that guy, yeah. I see him every year. He, and he's <laughs> Why like, is a white guy in this film? But he's like the standard deployed gaijin. He corners the evil gaijin market in, in Japanese films. He's just in every... When you see him, you'll go, that guy, he's been in everything. He's like the guy from Big Rebel in Little China who was in a, a, a vaguely either oriental or possibly Mongolian heavy in every single 80s action film yeah. and he was just turned and he, you can tell because he's got a kind of wonky eye and he but he I think there was an exchange program we got him uh, Asia got this guy and you all go oh it's him yeah and he's he's, he's really good in it really good fun <laughs> he's it's fun. completely bonkers but like I said this is goofy but I think you'll enjoy it extras uh- uh, really all they have is one 11-minute uh, extra, which is from the Fantasia Film Festival you mentioned earlier, which is behind-the-screens footage of per, of the people there arriving in Montreal and then a Q&A session. So. Yeah. Oh, and the, the subtitles on that are horribly out of sync, which was kind of awful. Oh, <laughs> they're, it's they're always ridiculous. frustrating. Oh, we kind of go, he stopped talking a minute ago. I know he did. And like, here it comes. But yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it's good fun. <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite things in subtitled Hong Kong movies where someone talks for like 10 seconds and it just says, Yes. <laughs> You're like, that's not what he said. <laughs> you weren't even trying. A friend of mine worked in a subtitling house years and years ago, um, and this was back when they didn't really care, and they were all just working on speed to get as much uh, as, as many films out the door as possible in the voiceovers. Um, so one time they did actually just use uh, leftover lines from the Star Wars films. Really? And it's it, nothing, the, there is no plot at all related to what's going on on screen. They just randomly threw stuff in there because they just thought it'd be hilarious. It's like going to a Korean karaoke house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, what does this gangster movie have to do with Open Arms by Journey? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's move on to television and a miniseries that a lot of people were anticipating as sort of like the return of like a Deadwood type series and. God knows they wanted to. And the show is called Klondike. It was a three-part miniseries, the first of the uh, Discovery Channel's attempt to start putting out narrative television stuff. Everybody wants to get into the game right now. Yeah. I mean, like Vikings is a good example of a show from... I forget who's putting that out. I can't That's remember. History. The History That's Channel. History Channel. That should not be good, and is really, really good. <laughs> yeah, it's, That's Game of Thrones crossed with uh, Sons of Anarchy, and somehow it totally works like crazy. But this is feels more like a first attempt. Um, it's Each episode is like movie length, about an hour and a half long. And uh, speaking of Game of Thrones, it stars Richard Madden, who was, uh, uh, you know, 
who stopped being in Game of Thrones at the Red Wedding episode. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we say? Uh, and he looks exactly the same as he did on Game of Thrones. But here, he and his best friend are uh, prospective adventurers who, you know, they want to go out to where there's a gold rush out in Alaska and the Klondike. And, you know, they're like, they're young. They're like, fuck it, we just got out of school. This is our time. You know, we've got a get-rich scheme, and we're going to go with it. And they get up there, and of course, it's just... I mean, it's like Deadwood. It's a mess of a town. There's no real law. It's just, like, people get killed for nothing, <laughs> you know? And there's almost no chance you're going to be successful at doing what you do. <laughs> I mean, as it is, everyone's already saying, it's probably about to be played out up there, you know, where everyone in real life did, in fact, move on to Nome, Alaska, even further fucking north. <laughs> Jesus, gold There's fever. a plan. But uh, in the town, you've got some interesting people here, like Abby Cornish, who I've always been kind of mixed about. Yeah. She's won some awards uh, for some of her foreign work, but so far um, uh, American works have not been real crazy about. But she's kind of the the uh, the tough girl who owns Ugh. most of the town and is like obviously going to hook up with the lead character because they don't get along at first at all. I'm just looking at the character list on this and I'm thinking, oh, I can predict pretty much everything that's going to happen yep. here. Is, is it as by the numbers as it seems? Um, yes and no. Um, it doesn't make a huge amount of surprises. I mean, the big thing is right from the beginning, his the main character's best friend is they're sitting on their mine, you know, sitting out there, and somebody from somewhere with a long-distance rifle kills him, his friend. <laughs> uh, and there's the big running mystery of the show is, well, who did this? And, you know, the the partner shortly after that does, in fact, discover gold with his new partner that's forced on him, played by Tim Blake Nelson, who's Ooh. great in this. Oh, well, he's great he's, in everything. Yeah, he's, he's just really fun to watch here. Uh, and... The whole time he's going, you should be, fo you've got gold. Focus on mining this thing. Fuck, who you know, your friend died. I'm sorry, that sucks. But it's a goddamn Klondike. We don't know who did it. He probably never will. Focus on the gold. But he's obsessed with revenge. And so revenge! this thing keeps coming back and screwing him. Uh, you've also got Tim Roth playing the very generic villain. But he chews so much scenery that you don't care. He's fun to watch in it. Uh, Sam Shepard, who's probably the best performer in this entire thing. But he's Sam Shepard. What are you going to do? No. <laughs> Uh, plays Father Judge, who's just, you know, a, a new priest come to the town that nobody wants there at all, but that befriends the main characters and is actually, oh, he's interesting. And my biggest, my biggest complaint with this is rather than go with a more interesting solution to the mystery that would have involved him, they went with a very generic, oh, that guy, apparently, that guy got some screen time, like, the first episode. Really? Yeah. For this really banal reasoning, and you're like, okay, all right, well, there's a lot of problems like that with us. The biggest problem is that, you know how well-written Deadwood was? Yeah. Where it was just, the dialogue was scintillating. It was just like, oh my god, I've got to watch this again with subtitles just so I can make sure I don't miss any, a single cocksucker. Uh, this wants to be that really bad, but it's this... Bad first-year film school philosophical dialogue. People talk like no one ever talks, ever, <laughs> you know, about the meaning of life and the symbolism of everything that surrounds them. You're like, are you kidding me right now? Fucking cut that shit out. <laughs> somebody murder somebody or sleep with a prostitute. I don't care. Just stop trying to be so, you know, I don't mind if you're pretentious as long as you do it well. This is very poorly pretentious. It has pretensions of being pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't really completely work. Is, but, it, is this just another of those instances where you go, 
I wish Tim Roth was in something better again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of those stars we thought he would go A-list, and it just never really happened. He's like an A-. minus. Eh, he's more, I'd still say he's about in B. I mean, his career post, post Pulp Fiction has been mm. less than spectacular, yeah. I'm afraid. Which is weird, because he's really good. Yeah. And, well, what was that? Was he in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? He was in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. That. Okay. So, Klondike... If you're dying for a Western television show fix, it's not terrible, but it's going to take you a while to warm up to it, so to speak, because it's cold. What would you do for a Klondike rerun? Uh, I would do nothing. There we go. I, for a Deadwood uh, finishing movie, I would do much. <laughs> We've heard this. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our next film, which is one of the better movies that came out this week, I think. A documentary directed by... Uh, uh, Teller from Penn and Teller and starring and produced by Penn Gillette. That is not a film about skepticism. So hold your horses. Yep. It's not them attacking religion it's not or bullshit something like that. It's, this is actually not something I ever would have expected from these guys, which is called Tim's Vermeer. And it's such an odd concept with this guy, Tim Jennison, who is this, like, one of those dudes who, no matter what he does, he does it great. Yeah. You know, and he's a self-made millionaire who started from nothing, and he's at that point, he doesn't have to do his actual job anymore. <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, because he was a, a software firm down in San Antonio that does visual effects rendering software, and now he just goes... I'm going to go off and build stuff because I've made so much money. Well, he's the guy who invented Video Toaster back in the 80s, which was, a you know, if you've ever worked around uh, TV stations, you would know that was a huge, huge oh, God, change thing. The world. Change uh, the world. And then later, Lightwave 3D, which he's still making a fortune of right now. Um, this is not about those things, although he does use the Lightwave technology at points with this project. His daughter gives him a book that is about the idea that the artist Vermeer could not possibly have painted his almost photorealistic-looking paintings uh, in his lifetime without the use of some sort of technical trickery. There had to be something optical. And the theory was that he was using a, uh, was it a camera obscura? Yeah. Where basically it's a you know, super simple light bending where you put somebody in one room and then you're in a dark room with a small hole in the wall and their image will be projected onto that wall but upside down. And the theory this guy had is somehow using that. He had to have been painting over it or something. Uh, Tim, deciding, because fuck it, I got money to blow. I'm going to try and replicate this and see if I can do it, uh, finds that there's no way to paint over that. Because the colors change too drastically. So he figures out this whole theory using a very small mirror of how he possibly could have used this technology to paint his paintings as realistically as he could. Now, this is more interested by the fact that Tim has never painted anything in his life. He has no technique, no learned skill, no natural talent, nothing. And, you know, and early on in this, using this technique, he tries to do a photorealistic recreation of a picture he has using paints. His first attempt ever painting... And God help you, it's photorealistic as hell. Yeah. And he's like, um, yeah, this almost has to be how he did it. And the rest of the film is him setting up one of the most famous Vermeer paintings and building the entire fucking thing. Rebuilding by Vermeer's studio. Yeah. From, from the. Ver I mean, he basically retro engineers what Vermeer's studio looked like from Vermeer's pictures down to the, exactly the right size of tiles, which he has to get custom made. Then he. Reconstructs this thing, builds the mechanism that he thinks did the, the or he used to create the pictures, and then sits there 
for an extremely long period of time and does this. And this is what is great about how this film is structured, because I think a lot of art history documentaries go, well, you know, there's a mystery and could it be solved? And they, they keep guessing until the end. And you're like, no, you've already told me this is not. This is about a guy who goes, I have a theory about how this worked. And I'm going to prove it. And you sit there as he proves it. And as he convinces himself, I really have to do this picture. I've never done this before. And there's a point at about day 80 where he goes, I, I know the theory works now. Can I just stop? Yeah, he's going, I'm so I'll be honest. Tired of this. If we hadn't agreed to make a film, I would have already said, I made my point and just stop. And he finds little bits and pieces as he as he's painting this that actually reinforce the theory. So there's lines that are, are bent in a way they would only be bent on an original Vermeer if he was working using the mirror. And they get to the point where they go, we don't definitely know that he did this, but it works right. Yeah, he's with the other world experts on Vermeer who he meets up with who are like, you know, obviously there's no way to 100% prove he did this, but... Like, it seems to me that you've left very little doubt yeah. that this was how he did. And, like, a, a, even when the original theory came out that Vermeer was using a camera obscura, the art world flipped out. Because they didn't want to believe that they they were like, no, that's cheating. Was, and they talk about this whole, they get into that whole idea of, like, so, but by the same argument, so is just having a model pose for you and not painting completely from your imagination. Yeah. You know, um... It's it's a silly argument in the first place. I mean, still, you look at his paintings; they're absolutely gorgeous. You know, a lot of his about it was what he chose to paint and yeah. the composition he did. I mean, you see a lot of that with just the struggle that came for him to even recreate this room. This guy doesn't know anything about making windows or tiles or uh, uh, woodwork. Learned how to do all of it himself, yeah, <laughs> so he could build this thing. I mean. This, well, uh, does his family even see him? Well, there's the, well, he gets his daughter in as a model at one point, and she's home from college for Christmas, and she all she has to do is sit there for two weeks while he's doing her face. Which you could she's just, like, I want to go home now. You could just tell regret written all over it after the first day. But there's, but there's a wonderful moment where, because this is about, the nat in a way, the nature of genius, the nature of, of creativity, of recreating a scene. And there's a great moment where... Um, uh, Teller, who does the vo who does the uh, the voiceover, oh Pendulite, uh, Pendulite rather, who does the voiceover, um, and, and, the, and the narration goes. This isn't, you know, it says it used to be that Vermeer was an unfathomable genius. Now he's a fathomable genius, and it doesn't take away any of the fact that you know he was an incredible artist. Yeah. He was a revolutionary artist who used light in a way that nobody else before. And now you go. This is a guy who created a whole new hidden technology to solve a problem that nobody knew was a problem and somebody has managed to recreate that yeah it's, it's it makes like, you want to try it yeah. i'm like i've got no painting skill but i'll be damned if i didn't see that and go huh yeah it, i'd be curious to actually that I, I see how that would make this like doable yeah it's it, I, this is a great documentary it takes a totally unexpected approach in how you're going to in how you tell a documentary story it's pen and teller pulling back from all their quirks and gimmickry and telling a very straightforward story. And in fact, that's what's so wonderful about it. It is really straightforward. It's a guy, he has a theory, and he go and he wants to prove it. And you have great kind of... They bring in just enough external characters uh, to really make it worthwhile. So David Hockney turns up, the, the famous British uh, artist and art historian, 
And he's great. He's such a wonderful, quirky character. And he's like, yeah, no, this seems fun. And, and you know, I mean, I see what uh, Pendulette and, and and Teller... What's his first name? I always forget his first name. I think it's just Teller. He does have a first name. I just can't remember what it is Phil? right now. <laughs> Fred. Fred Teller. Hans? It's it's uh, Hazazuki. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, you see what they like about it, because really what you're watching is the process, the scientific process here. You know, I mean, it's about a hypo- hypothesis and testing that hypothesis and coming up with proofs. It's watching it in exacting detail, but about in a fascinating, like, wow, that's who would have even come up with that in the first place sort of way. Really enjoyed this. Um, I, and, and dear God, if ever there was a film that demands being watched on Blu-ray, it is this. It look, I mean, the DVD looks beautiful, but on Blu-ray... Yeah, this thing just pops because you're looking at such tiny micro details because that's how Vermeer worked and it's how Tim works in making his own Vermeer. You know, you really just sit there and it's jaw-droppingly beautiful, which for a a very straightforward documentary is pretty rare. But, you know, and it comes in a double pack, so you've got your choice, but the Blu-ray is just stunning. There's a a point in here where they were trying to get into uh, Buckingham Palace to see the original painting with Tim, and the Queen refused their request. So they got set up to record, like, a bullshit-type segment, like screaming about what a bitch the queen was and apparently like the, the wall they were actually shooting they were contacted and told okay he can come in and so they had to scrap the whole thing but there's <laughs> he can come a in sequence but he can't take the camera crew with him he just had to stand there and look at it for 30 this minutes this is a sequence where you see Penn and Teller sitting there with signs and stuff doing their obvious angry ranting bullshit type thing but they never play the sound to it while you're you know playing the narration over it I was like okay that's pretty funny that even they were like okay now we can't use this <laughs> <laughs> anyway this comes with an audio commentary from Tim Jennison Penn Gillette Teller and Farley Ziegler. Uh, it has a, a Toronto, Toronto International Film Festival Q&A, a series of deleted scenes, uh, extended and alternate scenes, and the theatrical trailer. So, good stuff. Highly recommended. I don't know if I can as highly recommend our next title, which is the latest from Godfrey Reggio, a name you may not recognize off the bat. You probably I didn't even recognize it off the bat, but he is the director who's worked with famous minimalist music composer Philip Glass on a series of films since the late 80s. Uh, the Is it Quatsi Trilogy? Yes. Okay, the Quatsi Trilogy, Koyana Scotsi being, of course, the most famous of them. Koyana Scotsi. <laughs> Which I remember seeing in, like... God, whenever it came out, and going, this is amazing. This just blew me away. This whole perception of music and film, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not definitely not narrative. It's not an act documentary either. It's like the best you can compare it to is like an art music video that's like film length. Yeah, <laughs> and he made three of those. This is his latest one, and to me, this has just gotten to the point where it's like, we get. It. Do something else. <laughs> and this is of all of them the most minimalist visually, which I feel is part of my problem with it, was that nothing really happens during this at all. Not even a sense of, like, those, the Quatsi trilogy always has a sense of, like, vibrancy and movement. And this is just really focusing on people's and animals' faces. And I found what I watched of it about 30 minutes incredibly stilt- stiltifyingly dull. I loved it. Oh, boy. I actually, I know, I know, it's one of those moments again. Because the thing is, I love the the, the Kotsi series, but I actually thought by the third of them, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I don't feel like insulting anybody's... Uh, Non-Kia uh, Scotsi or something like, one, something like that. Yeah, I don't feel like insulting anybody's language. 
Um, but I thought they really were kind of, you know, reaching a point. This is a, a real change in style. It is black and white. The black and white is stark. It is simple. Um, and it's basically a series of very slow shots of, I, I think must have been taken on a very high speed camera. It looks like it was a phantom. It yeah, has it's that feel. Clearly expensively shot. Yeah. No question. Um, and they, you know, you watch things move in tiny, tiny increments. Um, and it's, I found it with something like Kindness Cutsy, you're waiting for the next thing to happen. This, you really just got to let roll over you. I, you know, and not be tired at all. all. No, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 Philip Glass's score, I think, is it's a real change for him. It's kind of a reversal because in the earlier films, you know, Glass was in a much more minimalist phase in his work, and and you have these incredible, exciting images. Whereas this time, you know, it's it's much more conventional, particularly for for Glass. Well, it's so focused. To the point of like where I'm, I do, I'm like, if it's just visual images with music, I need more to happen to yeah. keep me interested, quite frankly. And I think from like a, you know, it feels like something that would be projected in an art gallery, yeah. you know, in a room you'd watch for five minutes and then move on more than something you would actually go see in a theater. Yeah. Cause like I said, it's like very long, slow looks at like a piece of scenery and then it'll switch to a very close up of someone's face or the gorilla, which is genuinely frightening. I yeah. kept waiting for that gorilla to just say, all right, fuck this and just launch himself <laughs> at the screen. <laughs> uh, and, I, I don't know. I just, I mean, maybe it got better as it went along, but I just... I think it's it's one of these things that it it starts to add up. Mm. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think this is this is Reggio... Because I think people adopted to what he was doing in the earlier films so quickly and so readily, and they're just like, this is great, and they became part of the canon almost. I, you know, this is a much more confrontational version of the same thing. It's him going, yeah, in that, there was there was brightness and colour and movement. I'm not giving you any of that stuff here. I am pulling back. And it's, you know, very contemplative. Um, you know, it adds up to... I, I don't want to say what it what it is about, because, I don't, you know, I think that's very individual and very sure. personal. Uh, there is one splash of colour at the end, which is rather beautifully uh, deployed. But there's incredible shots. When of... the gorilla freaks out and kills the director <laughs> and blood splashes on the lens. No, it's very, it gets very Sin City for like two microseconds. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, you know, this isn't going to... This is one of these ones. It's not for everybody. I don't think it's even for everybody who like. As we've proven, it's not even for everybody who likes... Um, Filled glass the, the, movies. The Katsu movies. But I really loved this. I thought it was strange and beautiful and quiet. I think it's a real evolution for Philip Glass. I think I think it is Reggio going, this is not I this is the thing I do, but this is a version of it you don't expect from me. I think this is his, in a way it's his own reaction. Mm. And I, I yeah, I could see this being shown at MoMA in New York or or you know the in the South Bank in in, in London. Uh I watched it on my nice big TV in her home on Blu-ray. Uh it was just me, the lights were out. I had the uh the woofer, the subwoofer going at very uh, nice low level, and it just swept over in me in waves. I don't think this is a film you can watch with other people. I think this would be a, a miserable experience in the cinema because you'll have one person goes, "I don't get it," and we'll start shuffling. But sure. in a on a dark night, in a darkened room with just these beautiful, you know, black and white images building up to a crescendo, I I think it's it really works for me. 
Fair enough. Well, this comes with a making of, about seven minute making up, interviewing the, the director, Philip Glass and John Kane, uh, behind the scenes for about eight and a half minutes, uh, which is a career retrospective on Reggio, and then some interviews with all the people involved, including uh, Steven Soderbergh, who produced this. Well, let's move on to a film I think we can both agree on being terrible, which is oh, God. The Secret Life of I hate Lives you for dorks. making me watch this. You know, I was like really oh. honestly chuckling to myself when I finished watching this because I almost didn't get through it. I was Vicious like, oh swine. my God. And I was like, I'm just, I'm not going to tell him anything. I'm just going to hand it to the stack. And if he's like, yeah, I don't have time for that one. I'll be like, okay. <laughs> But I hope he watches it so someone else can suffer with me. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. This is a real film. It is a real film. Um, Galen Connell here plays the lead character. Because Shia LaBeouf is now too old. Yeah, right. And too popular. Uh, even now. Of Peyton, who is this drawn to the, just a silly extent, a dork, um, who is in love with Carrie, who is a cheerleader, uh, Played by Riley Vokel, who actually is gorgeous. She's yeah. a knockout. Um, and it's very, you know, like her boyfriend is captain of the football team and he's a abuser of the, the dork. And there's another dork who is secretly named Samantha, who's secretly in love with Peyton. But of course, he doesn't have any idea or notice. And it takes it wants to be a deconstruction of high school films. And it's so obvious about what it's doing and so ham-fisted about it that it just ends up being just another bad high school film of the same formula we've been seeing since the early 80s. Oh, I would say it goes further than that. This is so horribly awkward at every stage. Like, they're desperately trying to be funny and it doesn't work. And, and oh God, oh God, Jim Belushi. When Jim Belushi is is gives the best performance in your film, you know that you've made a bad film. And he, and he is. He's the most likable character in the whole movie because he's the only one who's not trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> this is. There's so many films that kind of almost do the same thing, but aren't as horrible. Yeah. I I didn't laugh once. And it's like you, you see all the cliché characters. And most importantly, you go through all the entirety of the film going, well, okay, this is a film about the typical nerdy character. And at the end, he's going to turn out to be okay. No, he's the worst character there. Yeah. He is a douchebag. He's, I mean, and I don't... I think that the, the goal of the filmmakers was to show, like, to be about that nerd privilege thing of the whole, like, oh, that girl doesn't love me. What's wrong with her? You know, it's obviously everybody else is wrong and show that the, that's bullshit. You're being an asshole. But they don't do it overtly anywhere near enough. And in the end, it wants to not offend anybody. It turns everything into, like, sweet treacle by the end of it that doesn't work at all. The, the, their conceit that they think is different is that the cheerleader, sick of being hit on by this guy, this nerd guy, decides to try and be a matchmaker between him and this nerd girl and get them together. And in theory, that makes it a very different movie. But it's the movie just reverts back to standard, you know, plotting almost immediately. That's like a very minor 
differential in a film that isn't taking any real chances. I mean, yeah, you've got, you know, you have your other stars, William Cat, the yeah. greatest American hero, who looks embarrassed to be here at all in every scene that he's in. And Jennifer Tilly. Who's Jennifer playing, will work for Burgers Tilly. Right? Who oh, just God. weighs another 10 pounds in every film we see her in. I don't mean to be critical about her weight. I'm just saying she feels like one of those Well, neither of us can throw stones on that. Yeah, no, very true. Effect. But she's an actress who looks like she just doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Like, every role she plays she plays exactly the same way this sort of breathy i'm kind of slutty and maybe a little stupid but ultimately i'm nice why is she still acting i don't there are these people you go you're clearly not doing anything other than picking up a paycheck at this point why are you here yeah i like that's why i really respect people like uh bronson pinchot who went you know what i could keep doing the same shit i'm not I'm going to start renovating homes in New England instead. And I, walked away completely. And I I'm did like, not know that. Yeah, and now he actually has a show on the DIY channel about renovating homes. Those things are so funny when you find out about that. Like the band Simply Red, remember them? Oh, the yeah. 80s? They invested every penny they had. They were not one of those bands that went out and partied. They saved all their money, and now they're all like multi-millionaires living overseas with like investment bank stuff. Andrew know? Eldridge and the Sister Mercy bought some slums in, in uh, Leeds, apparently, and uh, then Leeds became really nice, and he, he sold them for a fortune. No shit. That's why he doesn't bother making new albums. Oh, that sucks. That's kind of awesome. Man, I'm kind of sad because I really like Sisters Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want a, a follow-up to Floodland. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you know what? Secret Life of Nerds is, or Dorks is... Uh, uh, we don't even bother to remember the name. I guess. It's so... It, it just insult- And then at the end, everybody became... It turns out everybody's nice. And it's yeah. so erratically plotted. And character motivations don't make any sense from one scene to another. It really does feel like this was written by somebody with a concussion. Yeah. And even, like, a certain amount of, like, just really puerile, you know, puke jokes and things like that. Like, this is a mess that thinks it's cleverer than the rest of the messes like it out there, and it's even worse. It's like a mad TV spoof of Degrassi. It's not even an SNL spoof of Degrassi. No, it's not even to that level. Maybe the Anthony Michael Hall years. Ugh. <laughs> That's harsh. Yeah, is it weird to think that Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr. were on a season of Saturday Night Live together, and it's like, uh, who? There was other really great people on that one year, and it's by far the worst year Saturday Night Live ever <laughs> was on TV. Like, damn. Well, because right. it was people who weren't comedians. Yeah, they were funny, but they weren't comedians. No, very true. Let's move on to something I suspect we both liked, and that is the film. Uh, the I can't believe this is the first one. The film adaptation of the long-running series of shows and appearances by Steve Coogan's character Alan Partridge, here just called Alan Partridge, and in the UK called Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. Should I, for uh, primarily American audience, describe what through the history of of Alan Partridge? Go talk about, because most people have no idea who this character is. Yeah, you are actually dropping in after about 20 years of this character. Uh, Alan Partridge started as a uh, a minor character on a show called On the Hour, which was a radio comedy series way, 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 way back on Radio 1. It was a kind of news and local radio spoof series, and he was the uh, the weather guy. And he was just an appalling, inept moron. <laughs> and then On the Hour got transferred uh, onto TV as the day-to-day. And again, the character's just this inept idiot. Then he, got, he became kind of this breakout success, which nobody expected. And he got his own spoof talk show, which went on for several seasons. Um, and he just, and then 
Steve Coogan just became hugely successful. He's now he was in Philomena, which we reviewed a few weeks yeah, ago. Which he was is in phenomenal. Uh, I guess his big first American film was uh, the one with Robert Downey Jr. playing like the actor who dresses up in Tropic Thunder. That's yeah, it, Tropic Thunder. He yeah. had a brief role in the beginning that was very funny and memorable. Uh, and you know, recently people over here got to see um, uh, the trip, which was huge oh, yeah. fun, and just yeah. really started to break him out over here as a, as a real actor. Well, this is him going back to the character of Alan Partridge, that. Who now has after the uh, the chat show kind of is now a wash up. He's on he's a local radio DJ on Radio Norwich, which is like being the the morning guy on Radio Waxahachie. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it just it's a jo- steady job and it pays the bills. But just it's, about it's embarrassing to even admit that as someone who was formerly huge, you'd sunk to that. Yeah, point. and he, he's not even at the novelty of doing um, supermarket openings anymore. He's just on it on the on his final legs. The thing place. about Alan Partridge that makes him an interesting character is is that he's a likable narcissist, and he's a complete narcissist. And he always brings you around where you can't help but like him anyway, despite the ridiculous amount of like ego that he has that keeps him going. He's not even, an, I'd say, a narcissist. He's just oblivious to the fact that there are other people around him. True. Until they become either useful or he gets afraid of them. And he's more often afraid of them because he doesn't realize, like, oh, hang on, this is a real thing. I have to deal with the emotions of others. And he's actually going to go this, this hilarious... Um, assistant slash enforcer who gets rid of women he slept with drunkenly at one party <laughs> and then it turns out he didn't sleep with them anyway you know right. but gen- he kind of gets taken advantage of sexually by by fans because he's he's such a milk toast yeah uh and this story they did a good job of separating it enough from everything that came before that you don't really need to have seen any of yeah. that be familiar with the character you get immediately who this guy is, what type of person he is, what his background was. And there's no need for extended exposition scenes. It really happens quite organically here, the way they set it all up. He's working in this crappy station. It's about to be taken over by a corporate company, and he knows they're getting ready to do firings. And uh, his friend at the station, uh, Pat, played by Calm, the great Calm Me, yep. who's terrific and everything, uh, Transporter Chief O'Brien, he'll hey. always be to me, uh, is worried that he's going to lose his job, because he's the Midnighter, he knows he's the least popular guy on there, he's the nerd of the thing, and he's like, can you please help? And, and uh, Alan goes into the meeting, this meeting with the bosses, fully intent on trying to save his job, and halfway through catches a series of notes that says Alan Partridge or Pat Farrell. And he goes, shit, it's going to be me or him. And goes, you know what? Pat is terrible. <laughs> and turns on his friend instantly. Cause that's what Alan Partridge would do. Pat loses his job only to come back during a, uh, a party at the station with a shotgun and take everyone in the station hostage, including eventually Alan, who come, who, is in, who had left but is encouraged by the police to come back because he's the only guy Pat is willing to talk to. Uh, it makes for all sorts of really fun, goofy humor as they're all put in this incredible pressure cooker and Alan has to be the, like, is the only valve anyone has. Well, St- Steve Coogan... Years before Ricky Gervais mastered the comedy of discomfort, you know, you know, you really end up squirming a lot of the time because Alan is such an idiot and misjudges every single moment around him. And most of the film is actually like it's, he's an idiot in a kind of kind of serious environment. 
But Coogan is so funny in this. And I've not necessarily been his biggest fan over the years. This is phenomenal. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you because I've never really been a big fan of the previous Partridge stuff. I'm like, I get why people find him funny. It's just not my type of thing. And this, he is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. He, they, and apparently, from what I've read, this was a straight script, but... Uh, Coogan was just so into it, knows his character so well, he would just, like, something like, you know, the American, various American comedies that we see these days, he would just take a left turn mid-filming and go a completely different direction with the dialogue, and everyone would be like, here we go again. Yeah. And they, but it would work, because he just knew the character that well. So a lot of this was indeed improv on the spot, with Coogan just, like... Which throwing out funny lines, and you can when you watch it, you can almost see what those moments are, and go that it's even funnier for that. Yeah, and you, which proves again how great Cole Meany is, because Meany keeps up with him, total straight all face. the way through. Yeah, yeah. just just uh, with occasional looks of bafflement, which are absolutely perfect, because he's suddenly realizing uh, he he doesn't know Alan was the one who threw him under the bus, and yeah. he's come back with a shotgun, uh, and it just it's. Just beautifully funny. It's also kind of, it's very timely, I think, particularly in the UK, because we're, we're still going through this round of people, uh, of, of traditional radio stations, getting bought up by these mega corporations and getting amalgamated and losing all their personality. They're trying to turn the local radio station into Shape FM, the shape you want it to be. <laughs> and, and so there's kind of a little bit of a political knife in the belly there, which, you know, he, Coogan comes from a, a, a satire background, so makes absolute sense. But yeah, you know, I think if you if you know Alan Partridge stuff, if you, if you watched any of that, if you're a Coogan fan, this is absolutely this is as unmissable as Philomena for as Coogan performances go. Uh, but if you like just the comedy of discomfort, if you like Ricky Vase, if you like Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, if you like Arrested Development, I think even if you if you're on on a kick of something like The New Girl, I think you'll really enjoy this because I it's agree. just. Pricketry to the greatest degree. You just what you took. A, this guy's an asshole. Even at the moments where he has an opportunity to do something right, he does the cowardly, hilarious thing instead. True, uh, and that ends up with some really, really funny set pieces. This is going to work, I suspect. Maybe not quite as well, but almost as well for Americans as it does for Brits. So I'm really glad they decided to release this here. You know, I think it was good enough they could have gotten a small run, uh, limited theatrical release out oh, of yeah. this. I'm surprised they didn't even I'm try. I'm shocked they didn't even bother because Coogan's a big, big enough name now. Yep. If they should have put this out just after Philomena came out and, uh, on, and gone, hey, the guy from Philomena, and he's funny as well. Yeah. Uh, and this comes with a 12 minute making of, uh, about two minute, uh, uh, behind the scenes, a uh, AXTV, a look at Alan Partridge for about three minutes, which is a general TV promo with a trailer being expanded. Uh, so it's not a lot, but honestly, this is a movie you can just see yourself going back to a couple times and catching all the little dialogue bits you missed because you were laughing. <laughs> yeah, and inexplicably, the uh, UK release um, actually had a commentary track, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure why they didn't keep that on. That huh. just seems like a bizarre emission because that I think people weird. who like Steve Coogan are going to want to hear that. How much more expensive would it have been to encode the discs with that? I'm kind of uh, baffled. Isn't that really after the initial expense of paying for that commentary? After that, isn't it just you're, I mean, it doesn't cost more to print more on the disc. You're just making copies. I don't know. Baffling uh, decision. Baffling decision. Alright, well let's move on back 
Back to America with a very American film, despite starring uh, Liam Neeson, which, you know, let's face it, he's an honorary American at this point. At, at this uh, point. Uh, uh, called Nonstop. Now, uh, some of the guys reviewed this on the site. I did not get to see this originally theatrically. Have watched it since here on Blu-ray. Now, it was interesting because one thing I don't think was made clear to me was I was expecting just a very generic Liam Neeson action thriller. Uh, the cat is is being attacking paper again. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize for my, on Monkey's behalf of being too stupid to know why that's irritating. Uh, oh, there he goes, right back. Shoo! <laughs> Shoo! There you go. Monkey! There you go. Blooper time. <laughs> uh, he's probably going to go right back. And <laughs> um and it's not a standard Liam Neeson thriller. It's doing, it wants to be something different. I'm not trying to say it's really good, because it's not. But it wants to be Hitchcockian more, like a suspense film. And if there is something I would say about this film that I give it credit for, at least it was trying to do something a little different. The biggest problem is if you're making a suspense film like that, that's a mystery, that you've got to, that you'll, your audience is paying super close attention to everything, you cannot fill it with just huge plot holes. Yeah. You can't do it. I mean, even just at least to which the idea that someone on a plane with a cell phone could upload a video to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you ever tried to do anything with that much bandwidth on a cell phone on a plane? Because it ain't, ain't happening. happening. <laughs> but the story here has uh, Liam Neeson as the, he's a U.S. Federal Air Marshal. He's obviously kind of in trouble for being kind of a loser. He's an, We see that he's an alcoholic, but uh, he's trying to hide it, and he's going on a nonstop flight from New York to London on British on a British flight. Midway over the Atlantic Ocean, he gets a text message on his totally secure phone stating that someone on the plane is going to die every 20 minutes unless $150 million is transferred into a specific bank account. So uh, he's like, um, bullshit. But the guy proves himself to, to him quickly enough. And it turns into, I mean, I admit, the way it first goes with, like, the, especially the first person who's killed, actually, it's very interesting at first. It had me. I was like... That's interesting. I wouldn't have seen that coming, the way that they, they, they worked it out. And it's got a, a premise that sounds silly, but in execution, at least at first, is pretty cool. But as it goes along and you realize how useless a lot of the characters in this film are, like Julianne Moore, who's there just because, who sits next to him on the flight, and the film's attempts to give everybody a chance to be a suspect that are really forced and, yeah. and hard to believe... Ultimately, you just want this to stop. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, my first impression when I saw the box was like, oh, God, A, Liam Neeson, stop slumming. Actually, you are a good actor. Go back and be a good actor. Don't just be, you know, gravelly-voiced guy who, do, who does Taken stuff and things that feel like a Taken movie. And this is really is like, it's another one in that phase of his career. So you're always a little bit, are you slumming it? I know you can do much finer work than this. Oh, yeah. But in... As an example of this phase of his career, it's not bad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it kind of rips off some visual stuff from Sherlock, uh, with the use of the cell phone communication and how that's done. It's better than most of the other films that Liam Neeson has made since Taken was. That's the worst box quote ever. (laughs) Better than the rest of his shit. Yeah, Um, but it's it's not as good as Taken. No. But he's got some. It's got some nice moments. The, The fact his character is is basically a complete flame out yeah. uh the final motivation for why all this is happening i was kind of like 
it doesn't work perfectly, but it's a nice idea. I don't know. I found that almost absurd. The point, like, kind of like, really? Okay, I guess. Yeah. It didn't oh, it sell to me of, at all. It was, it was silly, but I was like, well, at least you're trying something interesting. And, you know, you it, know this, when this, they reveal who the people are, it's one of those that, as ridiculous as a lot of the, you know, plot stuff is in here, you can piece it together yourself. And I always like a film that doesn't leave the audience out of the loop entirely. Yeah. There's enough evidence here that you can figure out who the people are. And, and the daring of going, we're going to set an entire action film all on this uh, inside a plane, which even Snakes in a Plane didn't do. I mean, Snakes in a Plane keeps violating its own rules of space, sure. and also it's the biggest fucking plane on the planet. <laughs> Whereas they actually go, well, you know, even Con Air couldn't do this, but we are going to stay within the confines. Passenger a- 57 did, though. Oh, true, but that was terrible. Um, <laughs> Always this, bet on black, Richard. This is better than Passenger 57. Uh, and I'm assuming that Liam Neeson actually paid his tax bill. Oh, there we go. Did there. Um, you taking snipes at Wesley? Oh, <laughs> you know, it, it, the world would not have stopped if this film hadn't have been made. But no. you know, it's it's got some interesting ideas. The cinematography, I actually think, is pretty is is pretty good because it's it's very downbeat and dour and gray, and you get this wonderful feeling at one point when. But this is where it kind of falls down that there's a cop on board who starts going, well, what's this air marshal yeah, up played to? Played by the astonishingly talented Corey Stoll, who yeah. has not been offered a solid role since, like, something that shows off what he can do since uh, Midnight in Paris when he played Ernest Hemingway. Crime. You know, Just crime. Like, it's, he's so good, and here he's got a role anybody could have done. But he's 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 good in that, but it's such a stupid role because he does stuff where you're like, you ne- if you were a cop, you never, ever, ever would have done that. Yeah. This just doesn't make any sense. So it was, yep. it was miswritten. There's a lot of character motivation problems like that. And there's a lot of good actors in this that don't get much to do. Lupita Nyong'o, who just won like Best Actress for 12 Years a Slave, is completely replaceable here. They give her almost well, nothing to do. But to be fair, when she made this, she was a bit part of Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, Anson Mount is in this. Shia Wiggum. Uh, 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 oh, who was the other? Oh, Scoot McNary. Scoot McNary. Yeah. The, I, w- I will always watch Scoot McNary in anything. The chameleon Scoot McNary. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, like, that was Scoot that McNary? Him? Really? Who's <laughs> like in everything now. I don't know. Like I said, I think this is another one of those hungover Sunday movies that you watch it on the couch. You're like, I don't want to get up. Let's just watch what's on TNT. And you go, you know what? I had a certain amount of fun with that. That was not a waste of my time. But this is not one of those films that 10 years from now we're going to look back on and go, oh, yeah, that was one of the fun ones from that period. No, it's better than you expected. Better than I think you that's expected. what we'll go with. Better than expected. Nowhere near as good as it had the potential to be. Yeah. All right, and Liam, get a new agent, for the love of God. Serious. I mean, I don't mind him doing action films. He's great as this sort of elder action star. But be choosy. Yeah. <laughs> well, Clint Eastwood can barely stand these days, and I don't think yeah. he remember all the scripts. So I think, you know, he's, he's kind of falling into that. But come on, guy. He's barely direct fight. these days. Oh, harsh. Yeah, I'm, say, I'm just saying, Jersey Boy's not that good. All right, so we're going to move on to one of the... Something I really enjoyed the shit out of. Unfortunately, you didn't get time to watch it. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of... We, I'm very sad about this, because this does feature one of my favorite actors. Uh, so I assume you you are talking about Liev Schreiber? Oh, yes. Okay, so Liev Schreiber here plays the titular character on the Showtime series Ray Donovan, which had 12 episodes in its first season and has indeed been renewed for a second. So this is one that if you were worried whether or not it would get picked up, it did. Time to go pick this up and watch it because it is a... It's 
different enough from other shows that it appears similar to that it will su- honestly surprise you. And one of the neat things about this is there's no long period of exposition. It just throws you into Liev Schreiber's life, who is a fixer for a law firm run by uh, um, Elliot Gould and another guy. Uh, Sold. And he basically goes and, like, with their clients, he goes and does whatever has to be done to fix their situation. Like, the first episode is uh, where this one guy who's secretly into transgendered people, but he's a big, studly Hollywood star type. uh, And um, he's, it looks like he's about to get, you know, broken out with that. And another guy who is a heterosexual star, but is playing, you know, is known as the really nice, sweet, all-American guy who wakes up with a dead hooker in his bed. So he just moves the dead hooker to the gay guy's bed. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there you go. Because it's like, he already is a bad boy. It's like, yeah, she died of a cocaine overdose. You know, what are you going to do? But at least he's heterosexual. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's fun stuff like that, but his whole life and his life with his family is thrown into disarray when his father, Mickey, played by John Voight, uh, is released from jail after 20 years, and we find that he was put in jail in the first place by Ray, who falsified evidence to make it look like he had committed a murder he didn't, because, in his opinion, uh, Voight was tearing his family apart, was just the worst dad imaginable, beat his kids all the time, did just all sorts of shitty stuff, and the list of stuff that he did or may have done as the show goes on keeps growing. But the the thing is, for the audience's point of view, Voight comes in and he's just all like lovable, but like not trustworthy grandpa. You know, the kids love him. Uh, Ray Donovan's wife loves him. His brothers are like cautious, but still like more willing than not to trust him. And Donovan is like, fuck that. I'm going to have him killed. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes a really interesting dynamic because as an audience, you don't know what did he do? What did he not do? Uh, Paula, the beautiful Paula Malcolmson does a great job playing Abby, Ray's wife, who knows that he's cheating, which he does along the way with any number of su- supremely hot, uh, you know, one-shot actresses. Eddie Marsan, who's another one of those character actors who, like, is great in everything he does, plays uh, Ray's brother who has Parkinson's disease but is an ex-boxer and owns a boxing gym. Uh, his other brother, played by Dash Mihawk, uh, Bunchy, is an alcoholic and a sexual anorexic because he was abused by a priest repeatedly when he was a kid, which is a backbone of this whole first season of like various events tying into that. And he, every time he starts to have sex with a woman, he freaks out and starts remembering the priest and and, and loses it. So sexual anorexic, um, that whole idea of like vengeance and forgiveness and things like that is such a central theme, not just with that, but with so many other things in the show. Uh, there's a lot of good people you'll see appear throughout this. Like Elliot Gould is interesting because he he's married to Denise Crosby from Star Trek: The Next Generation, huh. and so she she's got out from doing you know, Z grade horrors, which he was doing a lot of. A few right, years well, ago. that's good because he was they don't do give her much to do here, unfortunately, yeah. but. Elliot Gould's great, as always, and he's got a brain tumor that's making him start to have, like, amnesia and not remember things. Be, be dementia. And this by a very powerful, take Brook no bullshit type of guy who now is, like, t- becoming a child, essentially. Frank Whaley is a uh, FBI agent who is, like, one of those, like, lone wolf guys, but not as a badass. He's a total nerd <laughs> that nobody likes. That's kind of blackmailing John Voight into helping him to take down the whole family and Elliot Gould and Ray Donovan uh, in order to, so he can keep his freedom from jail. 
lot of good stuff in here. Rosanna Arquette, Hank Azaria, Sherilyn Fenn, and Margaret. Like, so, so many great appearances, such great stuff going on with the plot, and a show that builds. where You're never really show, sure where it's going until you're past the halfway point. And then you're like, oh, this is not stuff I expected. And Liam Schreiber is just, he just owns this role. There's a reason it's named after him, because he is that guy that you wish was one of your best friends, but you would also walk around on eggshells the entire time, too. He does kind of (laughs) ambiguous malice so well. I remember his his brief stint in uh, CSI. Um, When they killed his character, sorry, spoiler, but it was like six (laughs) seasons ago, I was like, no, bring him back. He was he was really great. This guy that you're like, even when he's being completely by the book and completely legit, he still somehow has this air of of untrustworthiness. He's probably the world's nicest guy, but you just have this sense of like, do I want to stand too close because I I, I sense he's up to something, and so it really sounds like somebody's gone. Let's build an entire series around him. And the thing is, earlier in his career, they always tried to have him play really nice guys, and I don't feel like that ever really worked for him at all. And then they tried to have him play flat out obvious villains, and that didn't really work either. Now having these ambiguous characters, he's that's that's what he should do. This he's is the guy who was the best thing about Wolverine Origins. Yeah, how about that? Uh, which is, I know, faint praise, but yeah, yeah. we actually got what the character was. The best the thing about like, Wolverine, I don't know. The best thing about Wolverine Origins was actually the spin-off video game, which was surprisingly entertaining. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, this being a Showtime release, lately they've kind of pulled way back on bonus features and are doing this thing called Showtime Sync, and that's all there is on extra feature here, which is the idea is if you have a second screen, a tablet, phone, or smart TV, uh, this the app will provide background info, polls, statistics, and whatever about uh, the episodes being watched, and it's only for use on Apple Because devices. seemingly Showtime are cheap bastards. Yeah. That's, I I, if you're going to develop, develop for both. And, yeah. you know, and people come up with these arguments about why, why they don't develop uh, droid apps, and it's very simple. Droids aren't a single platform; they're a standard. Yeah, and you know they're actually the majority of users. Yeah, by, so by just, a sizable. Oh yeah, so it's it basically just it's laziness and cheapness, and it's inexcusable at this point. And, so and, yeah. Showtime, fix it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at least put on a commentary, something like a a few cast interviews. I mean, I would love to see Voight, who is a fiery personality and a troublesome man <laughs> in real life, to say the least. I would be just interesting hearing what he has to say about the, his character and stuff in here because he's really playing a guy that's not entirely unlike how I suspect he really is. Seems nice enough on the outside, but has diabolical shit going on on the inside. I always thought that John Voight is most like his character in Anaconda. Yeah. The complete sleazebag who who is actually determined to feed everybody else on the boat to a giant snake. You know, like, this is right up there with, like, scenes in a horror movie that just have been permanently imprinted on my brain, much like the ending of Sleepaway Camp. The scene where the snake vomits him back up and he stands there for a minute and his eye blinks and then falls over. I was like, that's one of those moments I can never bleach my brain enough to get that out. He just calls, in fact, he calls everybody little bird. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to another big theatrical release that just came out this week on Blu-ray, and that is Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Jack Ryan colon Shadow Recruit. (laughs) <laughs> There's no colons in this film. Yeah, there oh, is. you mean uh, uh, that kind of colon? I yeah. thought you were making an ass joke. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Jack Ryan colon. I know what Shadow Recruit. Um, it would have been weird if it was a semicolon, I guess. Oof. Um, so this is uh, the con- latest continuation slash another prequel to the Jack Ryan series, of which there have been many, and in my opinion, 
all of them are watchable to great, depending, falling in there somewhere. There's not really a bad Jack Ryan film. They're all fun. You know, even the weakest of them are still like, well, you know, I had a good time with it. And I don't think that Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit is any exception to that rule. It just falls more along the side of watchable over great. Yeah. And the problem there, it's there's not one specific problem watching this movie. Everything works as well as they wanted it to. It's just that nobody took any chances of any kind in making it. It all feels very, like, safe. And therein you end up with a film that you walk out of going, yeah, that was fun, but you have totally forgotten 30 minutes after you see it. And it's it's yet another attempt to be kind of weirdly timely because it's a post-Afghanistan, post-Iraq spy drama that this time it's Chris Pine as, as, as Jack Ryan who gets shot down and we have to go through this whole thing of like his courtship with his wife played by Kira Knightley who has an absolutely inexplicable American accent and I'm not sure why because it's not very good no um, and then he gets recruited <laughs> yeah uh, by Kevin Costner who once again is playing an old tired spy yeah oh, uh, are but you not I, done I thought, with it how many decades has he been doing that now I don't know uh, I actually liked him much better in this than I did in um, the other one we reviewed a few weeks ago uh, Three Days to Kill Three Days to Kill. Yeah. Maybe it's because we just spend less time with them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean... And like Kenneth the idea Branagh like, as an oil tycoon, a Russian oil tycoon, well, see, an oligarch. And, and like, it was uh, one of those, like, why didn't you guys have more fun with this? You know? I mean, yeah, you got Kenneth Branagh, who loves to be bigger than life if you give him a chance. <laughs> and that he plays it very close to the vest through most of this. I'm like, this movie needed a little more James Bondiness. Well, if, if anybody's to blame for that, it's Branagh, because he directed this as well. Yeah. So it's all his fault. Well, I'm like, fair enough. when did he get so bland? I guess somebody, somebody along the line said, no, we want this to feel completely serious. And, you know, there's a point in number of films coming out in a series that you go, I think a little less serious is what's called for. This is playing it too close to the vest, way too serious. It's still fun at points. Pine does an excellent job, I thought. I mean, he's very, we know how likable he is as Captain Kirk. He, uh, he does, I, oh, Chris Pine, really, I, he's a block of wood. He's a, he's a very nice block of wood, <laughs> but he's like Tab Hunter. It's like. Tab Hunter, that's like, hysterical. Well, you know, I know he has a. He should he be going to remake of Polyester. <laughs> his fan base but like who cares who gets up in the morning and goes you know what I wonder when the next Chris Pine movie's coming out he just he's okay I you know he's I've never seen the the dramatic A-list star appeal that Hollywood is desperately trying to delight upon him and this is another attempt it's you know it's let's reboot an already successful franchise yet again uh, make him even more of a superhero, which is my biggest complaint about what's gone wrong for me with the Jack Ryan franchise. To start off, you've got Alec Baldwin in Hunt for Red October, and he's a nice, affable, obviously career military guy who was really just going into the, into the officer corps, and he wasn't going to go anywhere, he wasn't really going to be involved in any conflicts, but, you know, he, he's in I wasn't accident, even supposed to be here today. And he becomes an analyst. <laughs> And then you've got, you know, the Harrison Ford version, which I really like, where he's yeah. an analyst. That's my favorite A little version. bit more action-y, but, you know, still basically some guy who gets caught, who gets get dragged into this. And now this is becoming, you know, it's, it's super spy territory. And I... I it's Why super- call it Jack Ryan? Because the whole point of Jack Ryan is that Jack Ryan is not a super spy. He's a doofus guy. He's smart enough. He's, he's fit enough. But, you know, he's not 
out there outwitting the terrorists. Right. He's a guy who you, who kind of falls into this stuff because they need somebody at the moment. He's like, well, I know a little bit about Russian, or I know a bit about sub, so I know about this, about that. And they try and have that a little bit here, but now... I can't make it's up Tom it's... Clancy has retconned this summer stuff. This summer. Yeah. He's fallen for the myth of his, of his own character, and he's made him less interesting. He's He's got like... Well, the later Die Hard films, honestly, where he's no, a Superman. See, I, don't, like, I don't feel eh. like it's to that level, though. I think, if anything, this could have used a little more of that, actually. At least in terms of, like, you don't really buy the... I mean, like, he starts off, he's an economist, and he's they send him in to work at this, like office building and just check and make sure that nothing's going wrong. The the unconvincing part is when he's like, hey, I uncovered there's some deal going on with Russia. It's like, okay, well, we're going to send you to Russia as that economist where you have to do a bunch of stuff that no one at your level would ever be asked to do ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it never really lets the movie go to the point of like, you know, let's have a lot of fun with having him be a James Bond type character. It still feels like they keep pulling back. They don't want to cross over there. And that's where I thought like it was playing it too safe. They want to sell him like that kind of guy, but he never really is. And it's not fun enough to just have popcorny fun with yeah. it. You know, um, I, I personally like Chris Pine a lot. I think he's got a ton of chemistry. I, I really I enjoy him. He's charismatic just, enough, but I'm like, I, I just don't, I don't think care. he's gotten a meaty role as an actor yet. Yeah. You know, I want to actually see him do something interesting rather than just be the guy who get, is on the, the wrong end of the can't scene. Yeah. You know, which was the closest he's had to something really weighty. And I like, they, they keeping him in kind of this weird suspended adolescence. I want to see him with the real part so I can feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand why he's a leading man. Because I don't understand it at the moment. Well, they, I, and I understand why he wanted this role because, you know, they learn you get associated with one very, very memorable part, like one big brand, like Star Trek. It can be very hard to move on and play something else. And he's like, but the, the Harrison Ford rule says you get two yeah. and then you can do anything you want after that. Yeah. Harrison Ford became Indiana Jones after Han Solo and everyone's like, okay, we don't care now. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but Mark Hamill's like, what the fuck? Dude, dude, I was in, I was in Stingray Summer. Yeah. Of course, he's not half the actor Harrison Ford is, but sorry. Great Mark. voice actor. Uh, great voice Phenomenal actor. Phenomenal voice but actor. But always had a little bit of a problem with the live action stuff, yeah. in my opinion. Well, after that, after that car crash. Yeah, well, you know, mm. I don't know if it's just his physical appearance, but anyway, this comes with an audio, comment, audio commentary from Kenneth Branagh and the producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, who I don't know why a producer is ever on a... Uh, on a commentary for a film like this when he probably just wrote a check. Yeah. But uh, there's a thing, Jack Ryan, the smartest guy in the room, uh, which is just a look at like reinventing the character and getting this new franchise started. Uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh, the czar of Shadow Recruit, which is just taking a look at Branagh's direction and on-screen perform character. Uh, Jack Ryan, a thinking man of action, which is a short look looking at the key action scenes. Old Enemies Return, which is a 21-minute extra that looks at the use of Russians as the film's villains, looking at U.S.-Russian history and our present-day relationship with them and how that relates to the film. And then about five minutes of deleted extended scenes. Like I said, this is one of those, if you really like the Jack Ryan films, you're probably going to like this one, too, for what it's worth. I don't think it's a terrible movie by any stretch of the imagination. I enjoyed it more than I didn't. But it's also, I would say, maybe the most forgettable of any of the Jack Ryan yeah. films so far. I mean, I even really enjoyed The Sum of All Fears, which I know got a lot of criticism, but... Well, it's, I, I just thought, thought it was inadvertently fun. hilarious deployment of a nuclear weapon. Well, that was like the part where like nobody had done that yet in an American film. So yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, but they'd already done it on 24. 
Yeah, but not... Like six times in, not like, in, in film, one season. Yeah. In so, a big know. theatrical film, you know, with Ben Affleck, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah, 24 major American city gets blown up every, every you know, And then month, they get chased so. by a mountain lion. Yeah. For six weeks. <laughs> My God, that was... You know, the first season of 24 is so good and so much fun, and then the second season is like... Uh, mountain lion. Mountain lion. <laughs> Although it did get pick up again after that. All right, so let's move on to our pick of the week. Oh, week. hells yeah. By as good as there was some great, really good stuff that came out this week, this is one of those where like, there, well, there, there's just no competition here. And that is HBO's True Detective. Finally oh. out on Blu-ray and DVD. Um, one of those shows that when you look at the, the people who are actually writing and directing it, they're like, not the world's most exp- they don't have a huge background in doing stuff like that you would know uh written created and written by Nick Pizzolatto with the first season directed entirely by Kerry Joji Fukunaga um who I think has more stuff under his belt uh yeah he did Sin Nombre which I thought was kind of an overrated indie film yeah. a lot of people seem to like it and then Jane Eyre which was okay yeah it was all right was but nice you don't dark think take on the story but you don't think that this is the guy that's going to come on and make the show that has is really the new high watermark for intelligent metaphorical uh gripping american television yeah uh and you know i think one of the big sellers here i mean i remember when i first saw the teaser for this i was like my jaw hit the ground i was like are you kidding me right now are you serious you're really doing a southern gothic series with woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey playing two cops over the space of 12 years in louisiana like i don't even care what it's about other than that i'm in yeah (laughs) you know and everything that you hoped this was going to be because of that it lives up to and more yeah the, and it's it's not just that it's sudden gothic. They introduce very subtly in this, you know, this it's basically a, a police procedural um, with uh, McConaughey as this kind of reconstructed, partially uh, by as they're being uh, interviewed by cops in 2010, saying, "Well, in 2012, rather, going, okay, so tell us about this case you two work together, and you've got." Uh, McConaughey, who at the time was kind of a little bit weird and ditzy, um, but had his own methodology, uh, who now is just this weird, tattooed, looks like a meth head burnout. Um, Woody Harrelson, who was the absolute by-the-numbers guy and seems to have just got more jaundiced and bitter um, about the whole experience. And then slowly explaining what this case was. Um, and it is just baffling when you begin because you're like, there's weird aspects of sacrifice, of European birth and rebirth mythologies. There's weird symbolism in the in the forests. Louisiana has rarely looked more it looked better or more threatening. Oh yeah, it's. Interesting. I've read a lot about this and talking with the directors how all the various influences they had, uh, Twin Peaks, of course, being one of them, which is unsurprising because everything has such a tone of threat that you're not sure where it's coming from and that you can watch the film and the series in sort of two ways. You can watch it as a very straight but very intelligent police procedural or you can watch it as a supernatural thriller. And it's not. Nothing supernatural is arguably happening here. It's one of those, like, you could add those things yourself and decide that there's some degree of that actually happening but it doesn't have to it's one of those though if it suddenly they caught the bad guy and 
freckles sprouted out of his head and he turned into Cthulhu, it would not have broken the tone of the show. It's supernatural <laughs> in the same way the Wicker Man is supernatural. Yeah. And I am very, very, very careful about comparing anything to the Wicker Man because it's such a high watermark uh, in this kind of, you know, this supernatural. The people involved believe something is supernatural, uh, but you have no evidence as a viewer that it is. Uh, you, you want to be very cautious because it's such a great film. This you can you can go okay. I'm going to put this on a shelf next to The Wicker Man because this is the closest thing I think American cinema has has come to doing something of that depth and ambiguity. Well, American television, uh, that kind of depth, ambiguity, the complexity of the performances, uh, and and layering on top of all of that a deconstruction of the police procedural show. Yeah. I mean, like. Everything at first, when you take away, you strip away the incredible, just jaw-dropping performances and fantastic written dialogue, is fitting in neatly into some cliches of the material that we've seen a hundred times before, but then completely subverts it all. Completely subverts it all in a very knowing, but never, like, pointing directly at the audience. You see what we did there? Sort of way. And there's some very subtle bits and pieces they do about the time period, which I you know, that it's supposed to stretch over a little over a decade, and there's a beautiful moment in the first episode where you know they've recreated 1995 Louisiana really, really well, and then it cuts to the to McConaughey being interviewed, and you suddenly realise that the two cops who were interviewing him are both black, and you go, hang on. That wouldn't have happened in the previous scene. You wouldn't have had two black cops yeah. investigating a white cop in 1990s Louisiana. It just wouldn't have happened. And you're like, something changed. And there's an understanding that, that just goes right through this the, of how that area of the world works, the, the level of mysticism that is still out there. This sense that Louisiana, once you get outside, you know, it's kind of sold to you in a cute, you know, oh, let's go see the tomb of Marie Laveau way in New Orleans. But you get outside. Totally different. It, it is a world where there are people who are going, you know, you know, where bodies turn up in the bayou and ain't nobody going to ask why or who they were. And, you know, you know that for everyone you find, there's a hundred you didn't. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love this use of kind of ancient European Celtic mythology that is it swirls all the way through this. Um, and the it, idea that maybe, you, as you're watching it, there's enough doubt in your head that you don't, you know, with these two different periods, you're like, so is Matthew McConaughey actually involved in these killings in some way? Which is a fascinating question it keeps delving into. His whole exploration as a character, like right from the beginning, where he's intelligent to the point that it has damaged his life. I mean, he's so intelligent that he can't talk to other people. And he has decided that life is amoral. Yeah. There's no such... It's ridiculous to even put labels of good or evil or anything on anything. Nothing means anything. There is no God. And Woody Harrelson, while not stupid, is a more t very traditional dude. Yeah. And is un enraged by Matthew McConaughey's declarations of the lack of any meaning of anything. And you can see how that guy could turn into a killer 12 years later. You could see that. Yeah. How that could happen. And it is one of the things that keeps you coming back in there watching, well, what's going to happen and watching their relationship splinter and fall apart 
and watching their relationships with people around them splinter and fall apart, specifically Woody Harrelson with his wife, played by the always wonderful Michelle Monaghan, who has a small but meaty part here in this. Um, lots of good appearances throughout this. I can't, I'm going to go completely like juvenile for a second, but I have to say it. Alexandra Daddario is one of the most beautiful women working in Hollywood right now. Uh, she's mainly been in crappy stuff. But she has a brief, brief role here as Lisa Tregnetti, who is a, a woman that Woody Harrelson's having an affair with, who does her first ever topless scene here that is extended and you don't want it to stop because, yep. holy shit, there was a woman who took her shirt off and it was everything you ever thought a woman with her shirt off could be. It's Alexandra Daddario. <laughs> In fact, there was multiple websites posting things of like, and our celebrity nude scene of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so I had to be juvenile there for a second, but damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is, you know, despite my little bit of uh, uh, speaking through my erection, this is super intelligent stuff that is told on multiple different levels. There's so many things to get out of this. It begs for multiple rewatches. Yeah. Um, and if you, it's amazing. I was thinking about it, like who this when the pitch meeting went on, it must have been hellish until they said, well, we've got McConaughey and Wee Harrelson. I think that was probably the moment where they go, oh yeah, we'll, we'll buy this. But this is a, a series that will appeal to people who like uh, intelligent police procedurals, that they like deconstructionist cinema. If you like something like Ben Wheatley's Kill List, which I think is a, a very close cousin to this, yeah, you know, there's so many, this is just a, a series with universal appeal if you like any kind of slightly dark drama, you will love this, and it will give you something you that you don't normally get from the kind of stuff you watch. This is True. this is truly, like you said, this is landmark television. And the fact that HBO has said we're going to do a second series, but it's not going to be the same characters, I really am going. I don't know how you do that because this is lightning in a bottle, and you have to find first off two actors that are going to have the same amount of wow factor working together as these two did, or you're going to have trouble right from the get-go. Yeah, and it's so. kind of one of these things where you go, how did this not happen before? Yeah. How did you not have these two basically just stuck in a car in Louisiana? Because there's a lot of them, and this has been mocked quite roundly by people as kind of as a meme, but when you've got those two in a car together just discussing the nature of, of the universe, or one of them going, you're not allowed to talk anymore because you're too weird... <laughs> This is just astounding television. You know, and these two guys are at the top of their power. You know, I'm going to say how it could work. Second season, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy play two washed-up cops that are called back. Oh, I'm in. <laughs> Who hate each other? <laughs> you just know? in. Just in. Sold. Sold. <laughs> HBO. Do it. Uh, yeah, this is wonderful stuff. There's a even like I mean, on every level, there's nothing about this that doesn't stand out as better than anything else. I mean, the cinematography. There's a famous chase sequence in this about halfway through that's all one shot that I was baffled how they did it. Like, just like, holy, there has to be CG involved here. I mean, it's just startling uh, work of filmmaking, really. And and one of the most tense and exciting scenes in the entire show. It'll just... I mean, I remember when it aired it was like all anybody could talk about on Facebook but either way this is a great set it comes with uh, only two audio commentaries only two of the episodes who goes yeah. there episode four uh, and uh, the secret fate of all life episode five so a little surprising they only did two there's a 15 minute making true detective uh, which is a production overview uh, 
there's up close with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson for eight minutes. Of course, talking to the actors about their characters. There's a conversation with Nick Pizzolatto and T-Bone Burnett, who did all the music for the show. And there's another thing where you're like, wow, spectacularly handled. Um, Only Treem really has anything to speak of on television that is come. Tremay. Tremay, sorry. Tremay. Yeah, Tremay has to, that com, uh, competes with this. Some, uh, somebody in, the, in uh, Louisiana just went, yeah. Well, they probably did that when you started talking about bodies in the bayou. But. Well, hey, <laughs> just because I'm making it public. Uh, inside the episodes for 36 minutes, which is a, every episode includes a four to five minute behind the scenes featurette where Pizzolatto and, and members of the cast and crew discuss everything from the episode. Uh, and then about 10 minutes of deleted scenes, which are really just two, but they're not particularly important ones either way this is definitely our pick of the week absolutely phenomenal you should if you even if you already watched this on hbo just go ahead and get it man this yeah. is like i mean you want to watch this with subtitles first off because some of the accents are very thick yeah, there, Louisiana. Were, there were points where i had to rewind it several times watching on hbo without subtitles going like what did he say what did he say <laughs> and even then you're like yeah I'm, there's still some points I'm like i have no idea what he said so uh, yeah, really looking forward to watching this again. Which brings us to our final thing this week, our giveaway! giveaway! Which is a Norwegian Zomcom. <laughs> I guess that's what they say. It is a full genre these Z- days. Zomcom? Zomcom. Kill Zombie. The most just direct and to the point title pretty much ever. Yep. Kill Zombie with exclamation point. Um... And we just reviewed... Kill Zombie, uh, Jazz Hands. Uh, we, yeah, right. Uh, jazz Fingers. We just reviewed Blackout, I think it was last week, which yep. was a Norwegian film that's very sort of like, oh, that was 10 years ago everybody was making these? Or 15 years ago everybody was making those movies. Kill Zombie is kind of that for 10 years ago with zombie comedies. Like, like this movie thinks Shaun of the Dead just came out, <laughs> and there haven't been 40 imitations of Shaun of the Dead since then. That being said, if you can get past that fact that, like, okay... This has been done many times before. The simple fact that it's, it, you know, that it's Norwegian and some of the weird things that stand out with the cultural differences and everything and the just pure unabashed goofiness of this whole thing can make it a lot of fun for you. Um, the idea here is, uh, this guy, Aziz, he's a complete loser, works in an office building. He's lusting after, uh, secretary or somebody who works in the building. You're not entirely sure what she does there, but, um, random sex object number two. Yeah. Uh, he ends up in a jail cell overnight and losing his job. Uh, when his brother, who always interferes with his life, who's sort of a loud, boisterous kind of asshole character, uh, and always gets him in trouble. But while they're in jail, a sa- Russian satellite crashes into his old office building. As and, it does. And leaks chemical fluid everywhere that turns the whole city pretty much in the space of like an hour into zombies. Not quite sure how that happened. Once again, this is an absurdist zombie comedy. It's not going for people who want to pour over the details. Yeah, you're not going to do an epidemiology study here. Um, Now, very much, you know, taking from Shaun of the Dead, he's determined that he has to go back to this office building and save this girl that's not really his girlfriend, but he feels like he was about to get there with. So Uh, close! And he's trying to move with, like, him and, like, two criminal guys who were in the cell with them, uh, a female cop who is just so beautiful. I had to go look her up online immediately and go, who is that? Just just gorgeous actress, uh, who apparently is a very well-known model over there, so ah, it's not no, surprised to see that. That makes sense. Um, you know, are on this adventure. And she's actually, the, uh, she's actually really good in this. She I, is. I, yeah, she was really the best fun. actress in this whole thing, I thought. Um, 
and this whole gang, ragtag gang is trying to get through the city and he's trying to convince them, you know, we don't, ju- we shouldn't just try and get to the evacuation point on the edge of the city where the military have it blocked off. We should, we need to save my quote girlfriend and nobody's really into it, but bit by bit, he manages to make it to, to can get most people as long as they survive on his side. And there's some really funny bits in here with the type of weapons they use. Like the one, one guy, big black guy gets his fingers stuck in a bowling ball and he can't get it out. So he just says, fuck it. And puts his other fingers in another bowling ball. And that's his weapon. He's got two bowling balls. Beats people to beat zombies to death with a bowling ball, which is, uh, there's actually a couple of nice sight gags with that, where he's like, there are. one where he actually gets managed to get embedded into uh, a zombie skull, but he's, his other hand has got a bowling ball. on. so he's like, I don't, how do I get, how do I get off? it off? Uh, uh, there th- is a particularly wonderful POV gag that you think, Oh, well this is, going to be kind of gruesome and sad uh, because it's a POV of somebody as they're being killed and it turns out the people trying to kill them aren't very good at it and it takes forever and it's like, it, it felt like it was like five minutes long because it's just like nope still didn't do that and you're just getting like extra blood spat up in the air and you know they're making he's making like <laughs> noises and it actually becomes this, it becomes funny it's like um the original cut of the uh, the shooting sequence in RoboCop, right? Where they blo- it, it goes on for so long, it actually becomes funny. Sure, it, it, it hits that mark, and I'm like, yeah. And this, it's not the thing is, this isn't just ripping off Shaun of the Dead, although it is clearly ripping off Shaun of the sure. Dead. Sure, it's ripping off like dozens of other zombie movies and doing it proudly and going, look. We know you've seen this before. We're just going to have some fun. It's kind of like Bushido, uh, Bushido Man. It's just like you've seen this before. We're going to put this together in a, in, you know, a way that's just goofy and lighthearted. I have never actually seen a movie that was prepared to uh, a, a zombie movie that was prepared to reference uh, Uwe Boll's House of the Dead. But there's oh, a Jesus. clear House of the Dead, and like for you to go, yeah, we're going there, <laughs> almost to annoy you. <laughs> well, you know. And this almost feels just like Blackout did. Like, it's a sort of like, well, sure, those guys made those movies, but hey, this is our country making it. Come on, let's all get behind the flag. Now we're doing it. Let's all get behind our flag. I'm like, okay. I mean, that was kind of what Juan of the Dead was, really, yeah. for Cuba, where you're like, okay, it's not as good as Juan really of the lo- Dead. It's, it's not as good as Juan of the Dead. It's, but- it's goofy. It ha- very much has that kind of oddball Dutch sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, it, I will give it double props for something that uh, uh, the Dutch do, which is actually have an ethnically diverse cast. True. You know, the two lead guys are, um, are yep. Arabic, their friends are black, there's, you know, a white female character, a bunch of white office guys as well, but the lead characters are actually you know, are actually Middle East, and I'm like, well done. Yeah. You know, just for, just for doing that. And it's like, you know, it actually has a little bit of spark because of that. And it manages to do some stuff that I always wanted to see happen in a zombie film. There's a scene where a guy opens up on a whole crowd of zombies with a full-on rail gun that's totally impossible to fire. Like, for the record, I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger-sized, you cannot fire a rail gun wall just holding it in your hands. You would go flying back like 30 feet from the kickback from that yeah. thing. It is not... Just me- it's meant to be attached to the side of a helicopter. <laughs> you know, it is not meant for humans to pick up and there's, there's one particularly beautiful uh, sight gag in that, that he shoots a zombie bride and her um, headdress goes on fire because that's what would happen. Yeah. So there's some nice little touches in it. Well, actually, you know, they have a lot of practical effects, but they 
really know how to use the digital stuff well. That like you don't get really bad digital squibs because when somebody gets hit and they need some digital blood, it's always an angle where you don't see it coming straight off the flesh. So you like there's a car in the way, so it just looks really good. So this is done in a way that they they had no money. So this, I mean, this is zero budget Zomcom. Sure, but they actually look, make it look pretty good. I'm All kind of surprised by that. I think that having the choice to have the zombies bleed green blood, yeah, which is, sensible oh, was, call. was a sensible call when you were do, throwing CG in there as well because it looks it's it's harder to it just doesn't look as bad as red CG blood does. Yeah, you know, you're like, well, I don't have any personal experience with what green blood would be like outside of Star Trek. So, I'm just saying. Yep. Now I'm going to be sad thinking about Spock bleeding. Aww, Aww sad. <laughs> I was and always shall be your friend. No, stop. Chris Getting Pine. all weepy now. <laughs> Hush. Um, yeah, so this is fun. It's not going to be a classic of the genre, but you will have a good time watching it. It's a good watching with friends over a couple of beers type of film. Which you've got a chance to do. Indeed, because yeah. we are giving it away. Here's what you do. You go to your Twitter. You know what Twitter is, right? Well, you better if you want to win this because you're going to need it. And Twiddle you, away. Is that Twiddle? Is that the thing? It is now. Okay. It's now officially been changed to Twiddle. You Twiddle to us. Uh, what? If you there was a zombie apocalypse, who would you want to be your zombie apocalypse buddy and why? Like your accompanying pal that's going to go with you and help survive the zombie apocalypse. No answers like, fuck that, I'd just kill myself because you're lame. Seriously, you're not going to try and enjoy the zombie apocalypse? Come on. Also, you're not allowed to just say, anybody slower than me. Because <laughs> as we know from all horror films, the first person to get out of the room gets eaten. So, very true, very yeah. true. You want to be a middling pace. Uh, uh, send this at one of us net. No, one of us. God, what the hell is our Twitter? Whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> one of us dot net. Uh, and hashtag it kill zombie giveaway and we will pick the best uh answers i think we have three copies of this to give away i think so that's pretty cool so send those off and you will get a copy of kill zombie thank you so much for joining me again this week richard always a pleasure thank you so particularly much. with true detectives around because oh, that oh, oh just yes just pure pleasure oh, i'm wondering yes. he has my copy of it i'm like going so i know you've watched it am i going to get it back soon he's like oh no no, not soon. <laughs> no, not, not soon. soon. <laughs> you should have downloaded the ultraviolet coffee if you wanted that. You right. Just like, oh, no, oh, no, it's fine. I'm okay. But no, no. You'll get those discs when I'm, when I'm, good, when I'm good and ready. <laughs> yeah, they, in like in 2018. Bye. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week with another episode of Digital Noise, a whole bunch of new titles, more giveaways. In fact, I think we have two giveaways next Ooh. week. So uh, stay tuned for that. Get until, exotic. Uh, I know, right? Uh. Well, they're not all that exotic, but... Uh, until next week, uh, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Hey, you remembered it all this week. I, I still could be wrong. Eh, it's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>